0: Hello, and welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. The Democratic Socialist of America Convention took place over the first weekend in August in Atlanta, and a lot of things were voted on. One of them was a resolution to engage in the rank-and-file strategy for work in the labor movement. Now, there's a lot of confusion within DSA, and certainly outside of it, about what exactly this approach to labor work looks like. Barry Eidlin is here to explain it. Barry Eidlin is an assistant professor of sociology at McGill University and author of the book Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada, as well as a regular contributor to Jacobin. He was also a union organizer and an organizer for Teamsters for a Democratic Union in a past life. He was my advisor in grad school, where I spent a good chunk of time reading and thinking and writing about the rank-and-file strategy. Barry and I co-wrote an article that appears in the Labor Studies Journal called U.S. Union Revitalization and the Missing Militant Minority, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, Although it is behind a paywall so if you want a pdf you can uh, hit me up on twitter or via email and i'll send it to you and he also wrote an article called what is the rank and file strategy and why does it matter for jacobin i'll include a link to that article as well as several other relevant articles in the show notes okay here's barry eidlin barry hello
1: hey micah how's it going
0: it's going well. So you and I were both delegates to the Democratic Socialists of America National Convention. Yes, we were. And I was watching the Fox News coverage of the convention. And somehow I missed their discussion of our passage of the rank and file strategy. I don't know if that was like in the second half of Tucker Carlson or what that was.
1: <laughs> yeah, you must have gone to bed by then.
0: Well, uh, <laughs> I'm sure his explainer on the rank-and-file strategy was not adequate, so we're going to try to do that. Yeah, we
1: could use some more, more expanding of the concept, yes.
0: So uh, why don't you lead us in uh, what, what Tucker Carlson will not do for us. What is the rank-and-file strategy?
1: Okay, the first thing to understand about the rank-and-file strategy is that it is a strategy, not a tactic. So it is a broad game plan for building socialism, not just a particular tactic of encouraging members to get specific types of jobs, which is what it's often portrayed to be. And it is a part of a game plan for building socialism that is responding to a specific historical problem that the left faces today, which is that it is largely disembedded from the organized working class. Now, it's true that individual members of left organizations, if you sort of were, as I'm a sociologist, if I were to engage in a class analysis of DSA members, they would probably be members of the working class in the sense of selling their labor to get all technical. But they are largely divorced from any kind of organized expression of being a workers organization. So that means that they are not in a position where they are capable of organizing workers as workers towards collective goals. And this is a historical difference from what happened really prior to World War II. So prior to World War II, there was no question of how the left should relate to labor because the left was labor. I mean, all these movements were deeply embedded, predominantly working class Movements, And it's only after World War II, through a series of historical events that I could get into, that the left was largely disembedded from the working class, so that when you get to the new left of the 1960s, the left is largely on the outside looking in, and often at loggerheads with the organized working class movement. And this has ultimately, over the past half century, critically undermined the ability both for labor to win important gains, because the left has often been a critical source of devoted you know, militant organizers, but it's also hamstrung the left's ability to engage in a broad-based political project that can actually win.
0: And those events that you're referring to after World War II, you're talking about like the Red Scare and the purges of communists and other radicals from the labor movement uh, under, after the Taft-Hartley Act and all that kind of stuff, right?
1: Correct. But what's also important to understand there is that the Red Scare and Taft-Hartley were able to have the devastating effect that they did was a consequence of labor's incorporation into the Democratic Party in the 1930s. When you get to the new left of the 1960s, the left is really at loggerheads with organized labor at that point. And organized labor at that point has become very bureaucratic, conservative, a bunch of troglodyte bureaucrats, essentially, who are supporting the Vietnam War, who are engaging in all sorts of racist, exclusionary behavior. I mean, there's very little that would give you the impression that this is sort of the place to be for leftists. But then as the 60s wear on, there is a greater understanding amongst elements of the new left that their lack of a base in the working class is actually very much inhibiting their ability to you know, do anything, essentially. And so certain elements of the new left develop these efforts to bridge that gap between labor and the left and they have different approaches. So some of them basically have this idea that, you know, we go back into the plants, we, you know, agitate around socialist ideas. We, you know, sell newspapers, we raise the red flag. Um, and this approach, um, basically doesn't go anywhere. Um, And there are others instead who basically pursue this idea that is sort of what we're talking more about today, which is to embed themselves in the shop floor as workers and engage workers in issues that are of concern to them in their day-to-day lives and actually organize people around a program that will actually teach them how to fight the key thing to remember about labor in this time period is that the post-war period has seen this erosion of shop floor level organization, meaning that unions day-to-day presence on the shop floor has become very bureaucratized, routinized, and, um, There's not a lot of... There's less worker self-activity basically going on. So workers are sort of coming to see unions as sort of this third party that is sort of representing them. This is the classic sort of business union model. And that level of shop floor leadership that has traditionally built the labor movement and is sort of the militant force that pushes it forward is largely absent. And so the leftists that try to reorient towards labor in this time period sort of see as one of their key tasks to rebuild that layer of militant shop floor leaders that can organize workers to fight in the workplace as their key task. And they sort of do this with a variety of tactical approaches we can get into.
0: Right. And one of the people who out of that new left generation turns to the working class is Kim Moody, who's a, a one of the founders of Labor Notes, uh, which we'll get into in a minute, but also the author of this pamphlet, The Rank and File Strategy.
1: Yes. And so he was writing this pamphlet to sort of codify this strategy that had been developing for over 30 years by that point.
0: Right. Now, one of the things that you talk about early in the piece uh, what is the rank and file strategy and why does it matter that appears in Jacobin is uh, you're sort of dealing with the first principles of why socialists care about the labor movement in the first place and what are the limitations of unions under capitalism for affecting radical social change and why despite the fact that unions have these limitations socialists still believe that it's critically important to build power within the organized working class within the labor movement. So can you explain some of those dynamics?
1: Yeah, so basically it starts from the premise that goes all the way back to Marx that the working class is the actor that must bring about socialism. No working class, no organized working class, no socialism. Once you accept that premise, um, you have to deal with the second fact, which is that, you know, The working class, uh, to the extent that it can have any concrete meaning uh, and not just be some abstraction that we talk about, has to take some sort of organizational form. And under capitalism, that organizational form has largely been trade unions. Um, They are the sort of organizational form that the working class takes as a political actor Right, So it's that, that, that's the key distinction going back to where we started about sort of like individuals identifying themselves as working class versus individuals being part of an organized collective actor called the working class. What we're talking about with the rank of our strategy is the creation of that collective actor in an organizational form. And so that's a necessary step, but it's insufficient. And so that's where we get to the limitations of trade unions. Because trade unions, by their very existence, sort of reinforce the existence of capitalism because they imply the existence of a boss to negotiate with. And so they are an effective tool for organizing the working class under capitalism, but not necessarily one for transcending capitalist employment relations. Um, And so that's why they are a necessary but insufficient tool for building socialism.
0: So then in the article, you go on to talk about the idea of uh, the militant minority within the labor movement, something that uh, you and I co-wrote an article about. Uh, Can you talk about what the rank-and-file strategy has to do with this layer called the militant minority?
1: Yeah. So that goes back again to this question of how the working class actually takes organizational form, right? So how do we move from this idea of the working class bringing about socialism to the actual nuts and bolts of a movement that can bring about socialism in real life? The way that movements work is that there is a leadership layer, and there's nothing special about them. There's not that these people are like better people or more privileged or what have you, but for whatever reason, they are people that command respect amongst their social circle. These are not the people with the most militant ideas, the loudest mouths. These are the people who command respect within their social circles. And in times when you have a vibrant, uh, dynamic social movement or labor union, um, these people are able to use that respect they command to organize their co-workers to fight for that movement's goals, in the case of unions, to fight the boss. And in times when labor has been strong and has been able to build itself up as a movement, this militant minority, this workplace leadership layer has been very dense and uh, and well-organized and has been able to create this sort of day-to-day presence that has built up individual workers' confidence that they can act together to sort of build solidarity from the shop floor up. And in the post-war period, after uh after what's called the Treaty of Detroit, you can roughly date it to there, which is the 1950 contract between the UAW, the United Auto Workers, and uh, General Motors Auto Company, um, there's a shift in the nature of unionism that essentially cedes control of day-to-day shop floor management to management. So it basically concedes to management the right to manage in exchange for management recognizing unions' basic legitimacy and offering sort of regular wage and benefit increase and and job security for workers. And what that does is it has the effect of gutting this leadership layer on the shop floor and transferring sort of management of relationships between workers and managers to this bureaucratic layer um, Within the union officialdom and basically defanging the day to day uh, Schottler organization. So, the key thing that the rank and file strategy seeks to do is to rebuild that layer.
0: So, let's talk about what the practical stuff of the rank and file strategy is. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people listening to this probably think this is a fine history but what what does that have to do with like you know the democratic socialists of america in 2019 um you know first we should mention i guess that uh the organization labor notes which a lot of people are probably familiar with i mean essentially labor notes exists to help create and cohere this uh, militant minority layer right and if you go to like a labor notes conference for example they happen in chicago every two years You you don't see people there who are all socialists necessarily. A lot of the most of them are not socialists. They're people who are postal workers and teachers and boiler makers and steel workers and all kinds of workers who got radicalized uh, on the job and someone, uh, you know, encouraged them to come attend this uh, gathering of other like-minded trade unionists who Uh, you know, maybe they're not reading uh, capital on the shop floor or anything, but they believe in a democratic militant unionism. They believe in fighting the boss. They believe in the power of strikes and that kind of thing. Uh, And they're connecting with other people, both within their industry or across different industries uh, to help build and strengthen and cohere that militant minority layer, right?
1: Yeah. So what does it mean today? So, so, So Labor Notes has sort of been one of the key, you know organizations that's been trying to cohere a sort of uh militant leadership layer within the broader labor movement and you're right that that's that the population that shows up at a labor notes event is qualitatively different from the type that would show up at your typical left event whether it's a DSA convention or any other kind and the, the goal, if you will, is to make your average left event look more like a labor notes conference. I guess that's sort of a, a, a practical way of thinking about it. And I think it's important to recognize, this is an important place to, to, to stop and recognize that the goal of the rank and file strategy, again, is not to redeploy the existing set of leftists that we have in this world into other parts of the labor market. The goal is to create more organic working class leftists. Um, Some of that comes from them coming into contact with existing leftists who have have changed jobs or or what have you, but ultimately it has to come from within. Um, And so concretely speaking, I think the first step has to be for DSA to take stock of where it actually is in relation to the working class. So that means, you know, what types of jobs do DSA members have? Which ones are union? What sectors are they in? Um, Who is potentially looking to change jobs? Um, What are the types of jobs that people could, you know, reasonably be expected to stick around in over a long period of time? This is not a short-term fix. So you do that sort of assessment of where DSA members are. Based on that, you set some strategic priorities about, okay, where are places where we might be able to build? Um, And then you sort of set about sort of providing the tools based on that assessment uh, of where people can build. So that could involve, um, you know, just very practical stuff about how to get jobs. It could be practical sort of organizing ABCs in the workplace. It can be sort of connecting up people who are already in jobs in a particular industry. If people are in a place where they might be in a position to organize their workplace, it could involve giving them the tools to do that. If they're in an existing uh, unionized environment, trying to figure out what's going on in that union, what are some potential points of where they could exercise power within that union and sort of trying to push the union in uh, a more militant progressive direction, not necessarily by immediately, you know, capturing the leadership and trying to transform it that way. But, you know, you it has to come from pressure from below. You know, if, if you sort of capture the leadership uh, too soon, then you just sort of face a, you know entrenched bureaucracy that's just going to foil you at every turn and leave you worse off than you started. There has to be a transformation from the ground up.
0: So you mentioned in the article the teachers strike wave. Can you talk about that as a kind of tangible example of what the rank and file strategy can look like in application uh, and, you know, what what a successful Deployment of that strategy can look like in a union or an industry?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, each of these examples has its own particularities, and there's no one model for how this develops. But the teacher strike wave is an interesting case precisely because people think of it as this sort of spontaneous eruption, essentially. Um, And one of the things that I always tell my students when I teach my contemporary social movements class is that no movement is ever spontaneous. The sort of spark that lights the movement can't necessarily be predicted beforehand, but anytime you scratch beneath the surface and look uh, under, uh, look, look backwards, you will see that there is always some sort of organizing or organization that preceded it. In the case of the teacher strike, the reason it's important to understand as part of a rank and file strategy, even though it doesn't fit the sort of classic model, is that it started from a group of DSA members who were already teachers, who had some sort of respect and pull within their community of teachers, and they basically decided to put this organizing model to work so that when you had the legislature sort of taking action to sort of you know, impose this substandard agreement that was sort of a, a pay freeze, essentially effective pay cut, they had the beginnings of an infrastructure to basically build up a movement around And then the other key part of it that's important to understand is that while the existing union structures in the states, whether we're talking West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, they were certainly not leading the charge and the organizing did not necessarily happen within those structures. They happened alongside them and would not have been possible to achieve the goals they did without engaging in some way with that existing union structure.
0: Right. And this is also true in the case of the Chicago Teachers Union before the Mm -hmm. West Virginia strike. Right. That uh, there was a group of teachers, some of whom were socialists who were rank and file teachers, you know, classroom teachers and were activists in their union and they did not think that their union was rising to the task of these neoliberal assaults on public education and so their strategy was about first building at the rank and file level at the uh, sort of school level and then, you know, creating a larger network of activists. Uh, and in that case what's important to mention is that they also joined with a broader educational justice movement that was going on in the city with neighborhood groups that were fighting closures of schools in black neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, west side of Chicago, for example, uh, and sort of created this network of other rank-and-file teachers, uh, so again, some socialists, most not, but ones that, were, that believed in waging that kind of larger battle uh, for – not just better pay and benefits for uh, them in their contract, but you know fighting for all of chicago 's working class. And they first built at the that rank-and-file level and then eventually after several years of doing that and, and you know, years of different kinds of campaigns, eventually once they had built up a strong enough network of those kinds of people took on the leadership of their union that was conservative and that was not willing to rise to the level of the fight that was needed to push back uh, and eventually in 2010 took over the leadership of the union, which produced the Chicago Teachers Union that went on strike in 2012 and is this, you know, important left union uh, in the United States today. It was through that fight that started at the rank-and-file level and then went up eventually to the level of leadership and they also continued to engage with teachers and with CTU members uh, at the rank-and-file level to create uh, a kind of democratic and militant unionism that way.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that the, the, the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, and then also the, the, the LA Teachers' strikes with UTLA, United Teachers Los Angeles, are much more textbook cases of the rank-and-file strategy in the sense that you had sort of these groups of of rank-and-file teachers in the school buildings uh, organizing a sort of rank-and-file caucus, building up organization, building up power over many years sort of creating an alternative power base to the leadership, uh, ultimately taking over the leadership after building over many, many years and using that position in leadership combined with the sort of union caucus that still has an organization in the workplaces that that's sort of how it's supposed to work. Um, But it's not prescriptive that this is the only way that you can possibly implement a rank and file strategy
0: can you talk very briefly about we've already mentioned the labor bureaucracy but just what 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 are the sort of characteristics of that layer of union leadership and what what is our orientation towards them
1: yeah so unions like most social movements of sort of relatively powerless people which includes workers face this Paradox of organization. On the one hand, workers can only achieve any kind of gain through collective action, which means through collective organization. But these uh, organizations of workers are on, under constant attack, and there are a lot of times when they can engage in activities that could possibly win important gains for their members, but at tremendous risk of putting the organization in jeopardy. So you can think of a case where you're sort of potentially, you have a strike situation where the, uh, the, the you could win some big gains, but you could also, if, if striking is illegal or something like that, you could end up with the union treasury being bankrupted. You could end up with the leadership being thrown in jail, uh, sometimes even individual members being fined. So there are tremendous risks involved. And so leaders who are elected um, can often feel like it's more important to protect the organization over the... Uh, achieving the organization's ends. And as the organization sort of uh, develops these sort of bargaining relationships with, um, with employers or whoever they're bargaining with, without actually having to engage in the actual activity. You know, I mean, there's a saying in the labor movement that the strike is like a muscle. You know, if you don't exercise it, it atrophies. And so as union leaders sort of come uh, to—they prefer to engage in the sort of regular routinized bargaining without having to actually engage in the disruptive act of actually striking. Um, That muscle atrophies, and it ends up weakening. And so that opens up the space for employers or or the opponents to uh, test that muscle and find it wanting, which is sort of what happened— to unions in the United States and elsewhere. Proponents of the rank-and-file strategy have this analysis of the labor bureaucracy, Sort of we, on the one hand, need organization, but there are these conservatizing pressures uh, once you have an organization in place. What the rank-and-file strategy does is try to create structural processes, specifically having that organized layer of membership that can counteract those conservatizing tendencies by keeping the sort of organizational vibrancy and its disruptive capacity in place. So that's something that is lost if you're just focused on trying to, uh, you know, get better leadership in place.
0: So it seems to me that what we could take from all this uh, for our sort of next steps uh, for a DSA that just passed a resolution saying that they want to engage in the rank and file strategy in our labor work, uh, is you mentioned, you know, taking stock of where the members are already at, uh, you know, helping members get jobs, maybe in strategic industries, uh, you know, obviously public education, uh, in healthcare are important industries right now, the logistics sector, um, but I don't think that people's organizing has to be limited to those three sectors uh, by any stretch. That, but it wasn't all. Yeah, what's important is that that people get jobs and sort of put down roots in a given workplace and can organize their coworkers and become seen as respected. Uh, you know workers uh, with their co-workers on the shop floor uh, and build their, you know, build themselves up and, and others, you know, like-minded people on the shop floor as, again, that militant minority layer, right? Like that would be the, the rank and file strategy in action. And then that could mean, you know, organizing with them and going on strike and pushing for a broader uh, working class agenda, the, the kind of which we were just talking about with the Chicago Teachers Union, um, and And you know re- that's that is the sort of path to rebuilding uh, labor militancy and rebuilding that link between the working class and the socialist movement that's currently lacking.
1: Yeah, two key things there that to to build on what you were just saying. Number one is that you know, yeah, there are certain industries that we can think of as strategic, pretty much nationwide. so healthcare, education, logistics, um, you know, people sort of discount. Uh, manufacturing, thinking that we don't make anything in the U.S. anymore, but uh, you know, manufacturing you know, cer- certainly remains um, strategic um, in its you know in its in its disruptive power. But the key thing to understand is that this is something that also has a, a strong local component. Depending on where you are in the country, what constitutes a strategic industry is going to be different. You know, I'm talking to you in Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, you know, the, uh, the you know, entertainment industry is one of the main economic motors of this region. And, um, and so obviously that's going to be a strategic industry. If you're in a place like New Orleans, um, hospitality and tourism is going to be a strategic industry. If you're in a state capital, you know, public employment is going to be a, a strategic industry. That's why these local assessments are so important. For developing, actually implementing a rank and file strategy uh, within DSA. The second point to get to, to build on what you're saying about sort of implanting yourself in the work and really establishing yourself as a respected uh, workplace leader is the crucial importance of doing this collectively, right? That, you know, this is a long term project and you need to be in it for the long haul and it's impossible to do that without a support network in place. So to the extent that it's a viable option, it has to be a collective project, whether that be actually getting into the workplace with comrades, but more broadly with this sort of organizational ecosystem that provides training, resources, support of various kinds.
0: So, what about this idea of the obviously desperate need to organize unorganized workers in the United States? The you know the labor movement is has the fewest uh, by percentage number of union members in uh, almost a hundred years at this point. So, uh, what is the relationship between the rank and file strategy and organizing unorganized segments of the uh, American uh, workforce?
1: Yeah. Yeah, obviously organizing unorganized has to be a central task for the labor movement but also just for anybody who's serious about building a socialist movement. You know, if we believe that, you know, the working an organized working class, strong organized working class is an essential precondition for building socialism, you just can't do that with 10% unionization the way that you have right now in the United States. So, organizing unorganized is absolutely essential. And the question is, how do you go about that? And one of the key maxims of organizing, if you're thinking about sort of strategic organizing for building power, is that you start building from a strong base or where you are stronger, relatively speaking. And that means building out from existing unions. Um, You can't, like I said earlier, you know, like, new organizing has always emerged in some form of engagement with the existing union structure, where, whether that be the conservative American Federation of Labor in the 30s. Um, you know, even like the, the Industrial workers of the world of the, of the early 20th century emerged out of the Western Federation of Miners. There's always been that organizational anchor. Um, that from which, uh, you know, new organizing has sprung. It's
0: difficult to imagine what that would look like otherwise.
1: Yeah. You know, when we're talking about organizing unorganized, we have to be specific. You know, who is going to do the organizing? What organizations are these workers that we're organizing going to join? And once they've joined these organizations, what should they do then? Any strategy for uh, organizing the unorganized has to have an answer for those questions. And the answer to the first question, what what types of organizations are going to do this organizing, has to be unions in some way, shape, or form. There just isn't any other existing or organization or set of organizations with the resources and capacity to engage in this type of organizing on the scale necessary, Right. Because I think this is the other thing that we have to remember is that we talk about unions being so weak and at 10 percent and, you know, they're sort of moribund and all that stuff. But the flip side is that we're talking about almost 14 million members, union members in the U.S. today, even in their weakened state, which last time I checked is vastly more than any other kind of membership organization that currently exists in this country. And the other part of it, uh, you know, because people talk about, you know, well, unions don't exist in the South or unions don't exist in rural areas or what have you. Literally every zip code by definition has a post office which contains unionized workers who work for the U.S. Postal Service. Um, most parts of the country have UPS workers. Most parts of the country have teachers of some form. So while... Union organization is very unevenly distributed in, throughout the country, and we have to recognize that. There are bases from which to build. Um, so unions have to play a key role, whether that's actually getting them themselves or working with them or something. You have to engage with the existing unions in terms of what you're actually trying to do to organize workers. And then you're going to organize these workers into those unions. So that's the second question. You know, what, do, what types of organizations are these workers going to be organized into? They're going to be unions of some sort, right? Obviously, you know, if we have a, a period of upsurge, the character of these unions and the shape they take, how they operate is going to fundamentally transform. And we want to welcome that. We have to plan for that. We have to acknowledge that but it's going to start from existing unions and go in whatever direction it goes that we can't foresee necessarily and then what do workers do once they're organized i think we'd have to have a game plan for that and that's where you know we talk about like how do we transform existing unions into organizations that can effectively build power lead workers struggles and you know Build a broader, more vibrant labor movement because the current state of the labor movement, it's you know in a very defensive crouch. It's not in a position to really fight to expand its ranks. So we need to get more workers into unions who can then fight to transform those unions into organizational forces that can actually do the organizing of the unorganized.
0: So... It sounds like you're saying there's a plan for organizing the unorganized. It is not do not organize the unorganized.
1: Absolutely. No, that's the thing is that, you know, nobody is saying that, you know, except for like George Meany in 1970 is saying that we don't need to care about organizing the unorganized. You know, it's not like unions haven't been trying to organize the unorganized for the past 30 years. They've tried and, you know, and some have done an okay job and some have failed and, you know, but there needs to be more. And everybody recognizes this. The question is, how do you move from a slogan of organizing the unorganized to a game plan to actually organize the unorganized? And that's what we need to be talking about. And the rank-and-file strategy, you know, has an understanding of what needs to be addressed to create conditions for organizing unorganized. So the basic point here is that any plan for organizing unorganized also has to have within it a plan for transforming existing unions.
0: Great. Barry, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Glad to do it.
0: The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to the vast majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.